This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Auth0, authentication made simple for developers. Modern authentication and identity can be hard, but Auth0 makes it easy. With Auth0, you can enable login with any social provider, have multi-factor authentication, single sign-on, and passwordless login all at the flip of a switch. Find out how to add authentication to your Angular 1 or 2 app in under 10 minutes at Auth0.com forward slash Angular. Hello and welcome to Angular Air. Today we have a super special episode talking about Angular Universal using server-side rendering with Angular 2. And for this, we have a number of spectacular panelists with us, including Olivier Combe. Hey, guys. And Patrick J.S. Hey, everyone. And Ari Lerner. Hello. And new to the show is Wasim. Wasim, you want to give us a, a little bit of an intro to yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, guys. I'm Wasim. I'm a JavaScript developer based in Paris. Um, I've been doing JavaScript for, I mean, since the beginning. <clears throat> um, so yeah, I've been working, uh, contributing mainly to Universal a uh, few months back. Um, so I'm so excited to see, um, I mean, waiting for the re release. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Wasim has been awesome working with Patrick and I on the project, and we're going to get really into the weeds of what the project entails, how it works, all of that. But to start off with, I want to kind of give a little bit of uh, history, and uh, Patrick, definitely you can jump in here, but uh, just to give people kind of background of how this all got started, uh, and I'm kind of give this from my point of view, and uh, Patrick's going to add his kind of two cents after that. Uh, so originally, back in the Angular 1 days, early Angular 1 days actually, uh, I was working, and I still am working at Get Human, and it's a consumer-facing company for doing customer service, and we had the need to build, rebuild our website, so a consumer-facing app, but something that, even though it was SEO-heavy, uh, very uh, where public, the public finding us through search engines was very important. At the same time, we were trying to add a lot of new features, real-time features, that type of thing. And at that time, this was in 2012, there actually wasn't too many great solutions for doing server rendering, for doing you know uh, universal JavaScript, isomorphic JavaScript, you know, whatever it was. Uh, really, it was, it was Backbone with a renderer that was built by Spike Brem over at Airbnb, which was uh, one of the options, and there really wasn't that much else. So uh, I, for our stuff, I started building our own kind of custom solution with Angular 1. Like, I liked Angular more than Backbone, and I sort of used the model that Spike built with Backbone and just did it with Angular, which really meant building a completely separate rendering engine on the server side. So, you know, just like with Backbone, it didn't really make sense to change the core framework because it was so tied to the DOM and so many people that had built with Angular at that time built it in a way that was so tied to the DOM that it would have been extremely difficult and still would be extremely difficult to change Angular 1 
to do server rendering within the core. So we built this kind of completely separate rendering engine that would take Angular 1 code, uh, but then render it on the server. And uh, it worked. Uh, you know, that's what's actually live if you go to gethuman.com right now. Um, and I think it was about a year and a half ago when we were just starting to get some of that into production when, uh, as a, in parallel, there, I was blogging a lot and I posted one particular blog that Patrick just reminded me about um, called Screw You Angular, uh, talking about after NG Europe that there was a lot of people upset about uh, the direction of Angular 2 and questions about it and ambiguity and that type of thing. And so Patrick uh, reached out to me at that time when we started talking both about that article, but then we realized that we had a common interest in server rendering a lot of the work that I was doing there. Uh, so fast forward a couple months to ng-conf uh, last year, which was March of 2015? 2015. 2015, yeah. And uh, I gave one of the... Um, talks the night before the conference started. It was like, I was like a backup speaker and talked about our Angular 1 server rendering solution and then met up with Patrick. And uh, Patrick had started hacking on Angular 2 and had uh, you know realized that we can apply a lot of the same concepts that I had started to use in Angular 1 to Angular 2. Uh, so basically, we, we kind of agreed then to start working together on this. And uh, maybe, Patrick, you can kind of pick it up from there of what, <laughs> what happened after that. Yeah, so like, uh, stepping back a little bit, like, we, we met on Twitter. Right? Like, um, I was watching, you know, reading your, your blog posts, and um, we got in contact on Twitter. And then at the very last minute, I wanted to take out NGCOM. But then I flew over the next day. Um, and I missed your talk, but I was tweeting saying that, like, we should meet up and talk about server-side rendering. Um, and that's essentially, like, we met up, and then uh, we were talking about, like, how the different approaches to server-side rendering and how um, we're joking that we should, you know, do the same thing for Angular 2. Um, and it's funny because it's, like, uh, almost a year since then. So it's a good, like, uh, timing for the episode. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, was, uh, it was great. Uh, meeting and, and then like a few weeks later, like I hacked up a, a proof of concept and uh, I tweeted you about about that that got this working and then we should start working on it. Um, those are you know fun times because back then it was called like isomorphic JavaScript. Now it's called like universal JavaScript. There's a, a name change. Yeah, and uh, I think that even though that initial prototype uh, didn't. Do, it wasn't perfect or whatever, like it, it didn't have full functionality that the library does today. It yeah. sort of proved the concept that this is a thing that can definitely work. Uh, so we started talking to Brad Green, uh, who is nice enough to you know, embrace a lot of the stuff that we were working on and basically uh, gave us the, uh, empowered us basically to really work this as an official thing uh, with the tutelage of Tobias of uh, Funke, or no, what is it, Tobias? Not Funke. <laughs> uh, no, Tobias Bosch. Tobias Bosch is um, from the Google core team, uh, worked 
with us uh, in the early days to uh, get this working to kind of a real thing, started the actual universal repo and kind of we went from there. So that's, that gives like a little bit of the, the history. Um, but let's get into some of the details now. So I think the first thing that a lot of people ask is, you know, why does this library matter at all? Like, why should I care? And uh, actually, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Olivier, you know, you, you mentioned that you were thinking about using it for one of your projects. So, and, and maybe I'll ask, you know, all you guys, like, what, just talk in terms of use cases, like, what, what are the reasons why you were thinking about that you needed it? Um, so, we will be doing our main corporate website soon, and we will use Angular 2 for that. And I want the website to be really fast at load time, um, searchable by all, um, all uh, Googles and Bing and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but mainly it's because I want it to be fast at startup. Yeah. Okay, yeah, performance and SEO. They, those are yeah. two of the big reasons. Uh, Wasim or Ari, did you, you guys have any others for like stuff that you guys have seen? Yeah, um, I, uh, Pretty much, I don't. I, there's a lot of mixed results whether or not the speed to the users is. There's a big gain on that, but I think the SEO is like. I think that's. That's the reason why I why we do universal. We we do it on a lot of our, a lot of our uh, in-house apps. Yeah, uh, I agree with you guys. The two main reasons are the user experience. Um, and the uh, the ACO stuff, yeah. Um, I was also thinking about uh, maybe uh, trying Universal with uh, progressive web apps, uh, but this is another topic, I guess. <laughs> but well, yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely get into progressive web apps. Uh, yeah. But just to finish out, like some of the use case stuff, like just so we don't leave anything out. The, the performance and SEO are definitely far and away the two biggest issues, and we're going to dive deeper into those. But just, you know, to have the full picture, the, the other ones are um, browser support. So if you have an older browser or cater to an audience with an older browser um, or it's ADA compliance type issues, sometimes the latest and greatest stuff out there doesn't work that well. You know, if you if you've ever tried to run your Angular two or even Angular one apps on IE eight or whatever, um, one of those older ones, then uh, probably didn't, doesn't work that well. And it's great that they're out of support now officially, but there's still a lot of corporations that use it, so a lot of people are still stuck doing that. So server rendering is a good fallback in those cases. That's yeah, that's true. Also, um, uh, client-side caching, so you can use the your site completely offline. You know, for those dead spots when you're driving across Texas and there's no towers anywhere close. Um, totally agreed with that. Yep, Patrick, what were you gonna say on that? Yeah, like um, when we met at NGConf, I, I remember we were talking about like server-side rendering, and I was mentioning that. Uh, theoretically, you could support older browsers, including like IE8, um, by switching to server-side rendering mode. 
uh, remember like in a conversation I was saying that um, for IE8 support, you would use the best thing to serve for websites at the time, and that's literally just server-side rendering, right? So for older browsers, you could say, um, don't use any client-side JavaScript, just render everything on the server. And that's fine, that scales, because your IE8 users is really just going to be like 1% of your user base or 5%. Um, so you could definitely like have, you know, its own, even a, a separate server just for legacy users. But you could technically support uh, legacy users with like this offline support. Um, and that's something that um, that I ran into when when I was, you know, doing Angular 1 is that a lot of times for IE8 uh, users, they just want something that works because I was working like more like enterprise users and they don't, they're, they're locked into IE8 and they don't care about anything fancy or whatever. Um, they just want it to work. <laughs> and if you want something to work, you could just push everything onto the server and server nowadays are just like getting cheaper and cheaper by the minute. Um, so why not just like uh, build an application that works and without any, without much of a buy-in, be able to support those legacy uh, users who don't have a choice in the matter. So. The one caveat with this, because I, we try to do this with Get Human, like try to support, uh, see if it, we can support these older browsers. And what I realized, you know, very quickly is although it, it's definitely true everything that, that you're saying, Patrick. Um, even with that, like you run into other issues related to like, you know, CSS. You, you have to be careful about like not using the latest grading CSS stuff if you want it to even have like base level support because, you know, some, some CSS stylings, if, if they are, you, you depend on those for your apps, um, then those will still be a problem. But uh, that said, it, it is possible. So yeah, that's definitely one of them. And the last one, is a small one, but it actually does matter if you have a publicly facing site that you're trying to like get a lot of people sharing on social media. That most social media apps have this like link preview thing where they pull down the server version of your app and, and display it. And so, if uh, you do have a publicly facing app, that actually can be really important. And you need something that does server rendering in, in order to do that. I mean, that. That part, uh, you know, you can't get around. They're, they're, they're not going to have link preview, um, you know, I mean, I, not that I'm aware of, features uh, that do client-side rendering, um, maybe in the future, I don't know. But right now, that definitely doesn't work. Uh, so that's for some of the use cases. So let, let's get into there is There is one more. There is one more also. Like for your public, publicly-facing pages, you can host those on... On caching servers, you know, um, so you're the publicly facing when you after you render your after you render your um, publicly facing ones, you can upload those things to like S3 and get the CDN, the cloud CDN, kind of for free for those pages that don't require your backend, your hefty backend. Well, let's uh, talk about that in a minute. Actually, um, I did have uh, some of that coming later, but I think it makes sense because it's interrelated with performance. And there's, there's so, when you say performance, there's like so many different aspects to performance uh, and web performance. I mean, uh, it, it gets to be crazy, like, you know, the initial load versus, you know, subsequent and like what, what different part of the rendering cycle is, is causing, you know, problem. And for some of the stuff that you're talking about, Ari, you know, 
you can one one thing that um, way you could look at it is that if you have like a uh, totally static site, let's say um, something that you build with just like a build tool, static site generator, and this is not, not even talking about Angular, like just in general. Uh, technically, you could regenerate your app and push it out to a CDN every you know five minutes or something like that, and see changes you know every five minutes. Or on the other side of it, you could have a dynamic website that you use edge caching, something like Cloudflare, and have Cloudflare do like a five-minute cache. So it's still pulling from your dynamic site, but it's doing, you know, like caching the pages every five minutes. In either case, the user is seeing the same thing, right? They're seeing that uh, the pages are cached, uh, you know, between five-minute intervals before they get changed. Uh, so there, there are, depending on what the particular aspects of your app are, those are kind of two different approaches of, you know, adding different performance related to page level caching. And those, those two definitely, you need you know, server rendering for both, but those are kind of two different approaches. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and also you, you bring up um, the different aspects of performance. A lot of times uh, latency matters, uh, or sorry, latency is like a perceived performance issue. So when you have that, when you have your cache, and Cloudflare is a really awesome option for that as well. When you have that like edge cache available, um, serving those pages, the late you you uh, reduce a lot of that latency because it's closer to the user. Um, yeah, exactly. And you can do the, You can do something kind of similar with. Uh, I mean, this is getting a little bit further out, but if you want to use something like Lambda, which has cloud front. As an as a as another option as CloudFront um, as a um, storage layer, then you kind of get that pre-rendering if you use Lambda if you're in that space. So I guess the the, uh, the key thing, and, and we're and we're going to circle back to some performance stuff a little bit later in the show, but the key thing I guess I, I want to point out here is that um, there there are so many different ways to make your app performant. And one of the things to realize is that today and moving forward, there's always going to be a place where server rendering can help with that. It's, it's not going to be necessarily the main thing, but it will always be able to help with it. It's one of the um, questions we've gotten, especially recently, that there's, it seems to be this kind of confusion over if you use service worker, you don't need server rendering. Like that, that's like some people are saying something like that. And it's not necessarily true because it is true that service worker helps with certain aspects that server rendering does, namely if you are kind of reloading your page after an initial, um, you visit a site and then you reload your page, service worker can kind of cache all, a lot of your assets and then use those so you don't have to do, you don't necessarily need that initial render again. But... There's, there is always going to be that first-time initial render, and you, Service Worker doesn't help with that. Uh, you're always going to need, you know, in my opinion, uh, for a publicly-facing site, uh, something server-side rendered, whether it is, like we talked about, a like actual cached version or, or, what, or uh, something that's dynamically built at that time. Um, it's always going to be an important 
part of the profile of all the things that you do for performance. Uh, Patrick, what were you going to say about that? So this, you're, now we're getting into progressive web apps, and this is a movement that the Chrome team largely has been pushing, and that usually means that um, there's an app shell. An app shell is just like basically a mock version of your application for the initial render uh, without the content. Now, this is what we normally did before you know, Universal was more like a thing. We would always like fake the document, then the client will bootstrap and replace it. Um, but the other aspect of progressive web apps is uh, interacting with the service worker. Now, service worker, you think of it, it as a separate process that we're able to interact with. And um, that allows us to interact with the browser cache. And uh, whenever we request a page, it'll hit the service worker or HTTP call will hit the service worker, um, and then we can say like, to serve, serve the cache, and whatnot. Um, we can also do like, you know, push updates, etc. But for the most part, like, um, with Universal and, and Progressive Web Apps, they, they work together because um, you will definitely need to pre-render your your application, and this is so you don't have to manage your application shell, um, and you could go one step further and pre-render your whole application inside of the service worker cache. Um, and again, like the service worker is only for latest browsers. Um, so like this is, now we're talking about like edge like stuff, um, but they work well together. And um, we've been working with Rob Wernfall on uh, a Pokemon index progressive web app uh, example app um, where it's utilizing like pre-rendering as well as service worker and everything in between. Um, and it's, it's super speedy, but like, again, this, this is only for like latest browsers and everything, but the progressive web app story with Universal, it's, it works in tandem because for the older browsers, you have server rendering only, and then for everyone else, you have the dynamic content, which is a mix between the two. And then for everyone on Edge, you get everything, uh, including service worker and everything and super speedy, et cetera. So uh, progressive web apps is really just like three stages of, of users. We're going to break for a moment for a message from Angular Class. This episode of Angular Air is sponsored by Angular Class. If you're looking to learn the latest and greatest in modern web development techniques, or you need Angular 2 training, then sign up today at angularclass.com. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. Anybody else want to comment on the progressive web app stuff? I know that's a hot topic. Uh, I, I think um, if you want to do a progressive web app, it takes a lot of work. Uh, maybe just doing server rendering would be easier with your, with your stuff. And then when you have the time and you want to improve really your website, you can work on advanced stuff like that. But yeah, for me, it's a bit too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What I can say, what can I add to this is, with uh, Universal, I think you guys are are making a really good job by, uh, I mean, uh, allowing the user to render their application server side really easily. Uh, comparing this to um, progressive web apps on the topic of server workers, which, in my opinion, it's a uh, quite advanced topic, <laughs> really, um, for JavaScript gurus or, <laughs> um, so yeah. So I think uh, they are really 
complementary uh, the two topics. So, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, one, one other thing I wanted to mention with this, as far as the million different things you could do to improve the performance of your app, one major advantage server rendering is always going to have is that you're dealing with a lot of different requests. Like, So it's not a single user environment and just this one user. So you have hundreds, thousands of different requests coming into the server, right? So there's a particular aspect of that that you can leverage, which is that a lot of times there is the same artifacts, different pieces of the application that are used for this every request, and you can share those. So part of that actually is built into Angular 2 core, in fact, the way that they use protoviews and the way that they're now building the um, pre-compiling uh, your templates, which we'll talk about you know, a little bit later. You know, different, different aspects of that, which now you can, yeah, Pat, Patrick mentioned that protoviews are now dead, but, um, the point is that we can leverage the fact that one user already rendered a piece of content, and it's the same piece of content for a different user, so you get to re-leverage that. You get that for free, basically. Um, so that's a huge advantage. Um, and that, that's, uh, for the most part, for um, performance, I, I think it's clear, unless you guys had any other points, that uh, you know it, it definitely is an advantage. The one last thing I wanted to circle back to before we get into the universal library specifically and how it works is SEO. And I, and I just really wanted to make one main point for that, which is that the, I do hear a lot about, well, the Google crawler now captures the client rendered view. Why would I need server render? That's like, I hear that all the, all the time. And it is true that if your goal is to just get indexed within Google. Um, that is mostly fine. But A, there are other search engines than Google, and they still have fairly significant um, traffic. So if you care about like actually ranking in any of those other um, search engines, Bing, whatever, uh, they aren't nearly as good as Google. And then the other thing is that the, it's not perfect. It doesn't work exactly right. Uh, you, people that have like done this for a while will see that the client-side capture view might not be exactly what they actually want to have indexed. And the reason is that it, it's just hard. Like when you have a client-rendered view, um, there's like a lot of async stuff going on. And the crawler has to make a guess at what point to actually do the capture. Like there's no definitive way to do that. And so it makes mistakes. It doesn't necessarily support you know, every JavaScript thing that you're doing. Um, so the net effect of that is that, and this is not a definitive thing, I guess. I, this is more anecdotal from like, my own experience of like, fighting uh, you know, search rankings for like, all of our websites, is that I have never yet seen a purely client-side driven app that is able to compete with the top rankings of a server-rendered website for a competitive set of keywords. Like, it just doesn't happen. Uh, so any competitive keywords, like any, any search term where you're like, 
uh, intent on buying something, for example, you look at that, there is not a client-side rendered app among them. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that, which it goes beyond this show that we can kind of talk about. If you're interested, you can ping me later and I can maybe get into some of that. Um, but I know, Patrick, you have a lot of thoughts on this as well. Yeah. Yeah, so like there's there's really two worlds in web development, right? There's the static world and the dynamic world. We all live in the dynamic world of web applications, right? But before that, there was a static world where content was king and still is king. And that is like CMS base and WordPress and Drupal and whatnot. Um, because they have a ton of content, it's kind of the reason why like their SEO is like ranked higher because, you know, they care more about content. Um, but with Universal, um, what we're really doing is merging the two worlds of the static world and the dynamic world. And that is like being able to, to pre-render that we didn't uh, jump into this yet, but like uh, with universal, you're able to pre-render your application as well as uh, re-render your application. So um, not to confuse the two words, whenever we're uh, during a request response cycle, um, you could re-render your application every single time, every single time there's a request, um, but you could also, uh, pre-render your application during build time, and then this is what Ari was talking about, pushing it to a CDN, um, and then having hitting the cache. So you could now um, basically create directives for every uh, everything inside your index page. This is meta tags, uh, title tags, um, anything else. And then you could also, and that's your static world. Um, and that's pre-rendered, you put it on a CDN. But you could also include your uh, dynamic uh, application, which is usually like angle bracket app, and then that would also get a snapshot of your application uh, during the pre-render cycle, during the build sub, and that will be on the, the CDN. Now that is exactly, that's the, what you call app shell, um, because it's just a shell of your application. And then when the client is sends down the, the index page, you'll get the pre-rendered version of your uh, application, which is just the index page. Uh, a snapshot of your dynamic uh, application, which is just your application, then the client side code will kick in and then you're now in the dynamic world. So with Universal, because we could render pretty much uh, server, client, build up, or, you know, in a web worker even, um, this is really merging of the two worlds of static and dynamic. And again, like the reason why SEO is like, um, if you search any keywords, because in the world before dynamic content was king, and because of that, like you're to win SEO, you're going to have to make a lot of good content. Yeah, uh, since you're you talk about CMS on websites, um, I have a question for this. Do you think we need SEO uh, for apps? I mean, uh, actually, SEO is really great and useful for content for websites for CMS. But when you're building an app, um, do you really need SEO for this? What's your Certainly opinion? Certainly not for an internal app, but yeah. if you have a consumer-facing app, so GetHuman is a consumer-facing app. Like everything that we do, okay. for the most part, is open to the public and viewable. And in those cases, yes, most definitely. Um, but yeah, it is true that the SEO side of things, yeah, if you're building something internally, uh, it's more about the performance side than in that case. So one thing I wanted to mention too with the Patrick, uh, what you're talking about, uh, you know, pre-rendering and re-rendering, 
just to be clear there, it's interesting topic because there are different requirements for what you're trying to build, which sort of dictate whether you are able to use one or the other. And I feel like actually on both sides, people don't necessarily have like a good, I, they, they think they know which one their app can be useful for, but that's not necessarily the case. So like traditionally, the pre-rendered thing, like people might think it's only like a blog, let's say, where you are just publishing like once a week, right? That, that's like the traditional like static site generator type, type like uh, situation. And traditionally, uh, most other websites fall into like the dynamic, the re-rendering side, like where you're, where you're rendering, you know, on the server side every, every time. But that's not necessarily the case. And, and actually, I, I think it would be interesting to talk about what you've been doing at Cap1, um, which uses the, uh, the pre-rendering, um, but in a very kind of interesting way. Yeah, so, so uh, I'm working with Capital One to basically use this uh, approach of merging the two worlds, where the static world is um, essentially hooked up with the CMS, and um, the marketers can control the content and move the widgets around, but um, there's the dynamic part, which is many different teams. So if you look at uh, a, web, a website, a good example is like American Airlines, where you have a ton of content there, and the only thing that's dynamic is the booking your flights, right? So booking the flights, that could be a web app, but everything else is uh, static content. But you want the static content to be managed by marketers or someone else who can manage it. So that's usually by a CMS. And um, basically, the widgets that they're interacting with, that's matched up with an Angular 2 component. So um, that allows both sides of the spectrum to basically interact with this, this one cohesive world of static and dynamic where the marketers could move stuff around and uh, someone, the developer, uh, is able to work in the same paradigm of Angular 2 components, make the widgets for the CMS that corresponds with it, and then uh, everything gets pre-rendered, um, including a snapshot of the dynamic app, and then that is sent down to the clients and um, as well as the bundled version of the dynamic app. So when this when the script runs, it's going to basically run on the you know choose your flights thing, but everything else is pre-rendered, and you get a snapshot of, of that. So um, there were essentially some problems with um, the current solution, which is Angular 1, where um, the sign-up page will have a flash because it doesn't have a snapshot of the application, and that is the dynamic content, right? Um, and one of the benefits of Angular 2 is that it's like fractal architecture. It usually means that it can compose on each other. So to simply get a snapshot of the application, um, your index page becomes an Angular 2 component. And uh, all you have to do is include the application in the director's array, just as you would, as we normally would. And then when we pre-render it, um, we'll get a snapshot of the whole application without much effort. Um, and that's like the, the fractal architecture that Angular 2 is uh, doing now with components. Um, does it mean that you can make pre-rendering work with restricted access uh, of your website? If the user has to log in to see this part of your website, does it work with your solution? Are you saying that um, you want to maintain the current 
like page, but also like login? So um, I have an example. Uh, one part of our web app uh, uses um, uh, what we call um, uh, I don't remember uh, links. You, you can save the link of the web page that you're on, and it saves all the parameters of this web page so that you can share the link with other users. Um, but you have to be logged in to see this page. So if you try to use the link, uh, you get redirected to the login page. Um, would it work uh, to pre-render this page? Um, so you could pre-render the page, but if it's highly coupled with user data, then I mean, you shouldn't, unless you're totally fine with, because if you, you could pre-render everything and put it in on a CDN, but then that is public, right? There's no way to really restrict, uh, restrict that other than saying that, other than restricting at the router level of checking the cookies or whatnot um, to see if they are able to use it. But then if you're using that, then you're losing the benefit of a CDN. So there's, there's trade-offs of, of everything, right? Like, um, so for something like that, um, you could, um, so long as you're okay with that kind of a restriction. So, um, yeah. So you could basically, you could even do the other approach where you're isolating majority of the application, pre-render everything except the dynamic bits that uh, pertain to the user, and then you would just bootstrap those widgets. Um, so you could say, like, the whole thing is pre-rendered except the login part, and that's a separate widget. Um, so when they get the page, they essentially um, have the pre-rendered application, but the dynamic bit is an Angular 2 component. And then that gets bootstrapped, but then it checks like who's logged in and whatnot, and then it'll show the correct user. right? Um, and then if they click anywhere, um, they're just going to you know, go out, going to do another re-render uh, because they're making a request to the server. Um, but you could also wrap the links into the router and then essentially uh, lazy load the, the application from there. So there's a ton of advanced stuff. Now, this is something that um, I'm working with Capital One to do as well, uh, where you lazy load, because it's, well, this is, a, for them, it's different lines of business where you want to lazy load other uh, businesses. Um, your approach is, um, can we have a separate page that has, uh, like, some context of a user? Uh, that's dynamic, but also pre-rendered. So yeah, you could do that, but you could do a lot of things. It's just a, a lot of work and effort, and remembering uh, yeah, how the models work. You can, but it, my general guideline is that if you need to have something server-rendered that's like user-specific, um, generally you do need just to, to have the re-rendering, like the, the to dynamically be done. Uh, to try to like re-render that's tough. But the one thing you mentioned, Olivier, with like redirects, like like redirect um, for giving request if like let's say they aren't logged in or something like that, uh, you can do that with pre-rendering with like a proxy. So like if you set up a uh, proxy in between um, that everything gets routed to, and you put the logic there for um, doing like dynamic redirects, uh, I've seen that work you know pretty effectively. Um, but anyway. So we are more than halfway through the show. We haven't uh, dove into the details of like how the actual library works. So I want to do that. I just want to mention for the people watching that if you do have a question for anybody here, you can tweet with the hashtag NGAIR, N-G-A-I-R, 
and we'll get to it near the end of the show. So let's talk about the details of how this actually works. So there, there's kind of two main parts. Um, there's a couple other parts too we'll talk about, but um, there's the core universal library and then preboot. So uh, Patrick, why don't you start off talking about the core universal library and how that actually works? Yeah, so the universal library is more like a collection of helpers uh, or other like modules that we're creating to help you with server-side rendering. So it includes something like an express engine and a happy engine. And um, we even created a, a gulp plugin and uh, a, even a grunt plugin if people still use that. Um, like it's pretty much just helpers for like pre-rendering as well as re-rendering, re-rendering being like, uh, like express or happy. And, but the, the universal module itself uh, essentially consolidates like the different approaches of, it consolidates code that we could reuse within all of these integrations, but also um, it has logic that allows us to essentially grab the Angular 2 application and, and then um, essentially bootstrap it as well as wait for all the requests to be done. So when Angular 2 is, is stable, then uh, re-render it or then serialize the, uh, the document and send that down. Um, so uh, the other thing is that on any other like server rendering like uh, approach, um, they have a problem with capturing all the requests. And that is essentially, we could take advantage of zone.js and whenever the application bootstraps, say you make HTTP calls throughout your application, we're able to track that with zone.js and determine when or, whenever they're all done before rendering. Now on any other solution that does universal, um, that's like impossible because they don't use zone.js. But um, the other uh, approach with Universal is that we could take advantage of a dependency inject injection. And that is to say, like, at the top level of your application, during uh, we have a bootstrap file. And the bootstrap file basically requires your, your top level app, which is usually app. And then inside that file, we essentially, which is the entry file, we include all the like, platform-specific uh, like services. And so on the server, we created a node version of HTTP, a node version of the, the router location, um, and a node version of everything that you would want to, to need at the entry file. That's where you would use it. Uh, but inside of your application, um, it's interacting with the, the tokens of what is representing the uh, backend. So if you're familiar with Angular 1's uh, HTTP backend as well as mock HTTP backend. It's the same exact approach. Uh, we use that where uh, rather than HTTP backend, we replace it with node version. So it works on the, on the server, but you interact with the token, which is HTTP. So that means the essentially the app folder and everything in it, that is universal and can be reused on server clients and WebRigger, but we have one entry file that basically imports and swap out the tokens um, for different environments. So that's kind of like how like a universal application works. And if you're making like directives, you would interact with renderer and then um, server, because we are using the server version of the renderer, um, it's going to ensure that uh, everything works with our, our version of the document. There's actually three really big, really important things with what you mentioned that I want to actually 
go back to and sort of emphasize. Um, so the fir first one being the core of Angular 2 itself that allows for all this to exist in the first place. So one thing I wanted to point out is that, you know, a lot of the heavy lifting to get Universal working actually wasn't done by Patrick or I. Uh, it was Tobias with it and some of the other core team members in the actual guts of Angular 2 itself. They built it in an extendable way so that it wasn't tied to the DOM, so that you can build any sort of rendering engine that you can just build on top of a sort of core framework to render out to anything. And that's allowed, for example, native script implementation to render to mobile, uh, different other, other implementations, that, I mean, all sorts of different stuff that people are starting to build on top of Angular 2. And that is like a web workers, yes, another big one. Um, you know, so that, that is one of the biggest, um, most powerful things with Angular 2, this sort of extensibility and this dynamic rendering engine. Uh, the second thing uh, that you mentioned is the DI. And actually, one thing I wanted to kind of emphasize, you know, with that, that that's really interesting is that dependency management is sort of the name of the game with uh, universal apps. Like when you're trying to run something in different contexts, the hardest part about that is how you abstract out the specific dependencies for that environment. And there are sort of two major approaches that you know I've seen. So one is the one that Angular is doing with DI, and the other, um, it, or, or uh, if it's not DI, yeah, you can do a swapping out of modules, like a build time with like Webpack. That's a similar type of approach. But then there's also a different thing, like a functional approach where you start off with all your dependencies at the top level and you kind of pass them down within the functions. Um, that's that is kind of pure functional approach. And to be honest, I, I, I've yet to see, although functional programming is great, I, like, I totally love functional programming, um, I have yet to see the implementation of a pure functional programming, full stack um, JavaScript app that is you know, rather large, not, not just like a, a toy app. Um, and that's because as your app get goes larger, um, doing something with Universal is, uh, is, is extremely tough. Uh, you know, whereas with the DI, it, it, I, I, at least I found that it becomes you know, a lot simpler. And um, the other aspect of that is also um, specifically for the server side, it's difficult to... Um, get the context sometimes, like for example, like who's the active user on the server side? Like if you're deep into some particular like utility, you either pass the active user into it, or otherwise there's no way to get that context, um, or no easy way, but when you have a DI bootstrap um, at the request level, which we do with Universal, you can set what for that given request is, like Patrick was mentioning, all the different tokens. Like, here's the URL for this request, here's the, the user for this request, all this different stuff, and then it's very easy to access, you know, anywhere else in your app. Uh, I, I mentioned a couple different things. I have, like, two more big ones, but uh, <laughs> what were you going to mention about that, Patrick? Yeah, um, yeah, that's pretty much, uh, I think you could 
the, the third thing is uh, talking about preboot, and you created that one, so you should definitely um, talk about the, the huge benefits of that. Yeah, and actually, one more thing before uh, talking about preboot. Um, you mentioned zones, and I, I just wanted to point out, and you didn't mention this, but it, I don't think maybe it's appreciated enough like how powerful zones are. Um, that dealing with async on the server side is extremely hard Like when, when it comes to server rendering. And when you, when you look at all the other server rendering solutions out there, they have different approaches. The one that, that I've seen the most frequently is that they force the server side to be synchronous. They don't allow asynchronous to occur because it's hard to manage. Like how do you know on the server side when something is done? Um, so zones actually provide like a unbelievably great abstraction uh, to and elegant to capture that we know that all these async actions occur during this request and then the universal engine can wait until they return and then pass it back. Um, and the one caveat with that is that you know you could theoretically, I don't know, like put like a, a loop like in <laughs> recursive loop calling timeout set timeouts or whatever. Uh, so just because we, we don't want to like Get into this like situation where it like just uh, waits forever. Uh, we do set have it set to do like one tick basically, like one um, one series of asynchronous calls. Uh, so if you have more than that, then uh, you know that won't be captured without additional configuration. Um, I'm right on that part, Patrick. Right? It does one tick. Uh, yeah. So like another uh, thing about SoundJS is that like there's a lot of like even with with testing, and we spoke about this in the, the previous uh, episode. Um, in testing, you definitely have problems with asynchronous code, and that is like waiting for everything to be done before saying your test is done. So uh, we both utilize SoundJS to track when the calls are are done, when the application is stable, before saying the test is done, or before we're saying rendering uh, you should render. And presumably, this is exactly what um, Google was doing with the Google crawlers, um, which has now been depreciated when they're capturing JavaScript. They were probably waiting until the CPU is idle before saying it's done, or they're probably doing a, a ton of other fancy things. But um, what you mentioned is essentially if someone was using like a set interval uh, for polling reasons, then that would totally like break uh, everything because something's always running. Wait, it's uh, depreciated? I didn't even realize that. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, it's appreciated. Basically, um, we created our, our universal solution, and then they're like, well, we don't need it anymore. <laughs> so, so the crawler is not going to do client-side rendering is what you're saying? Yeah, they're going to uh, either slowly remove it or um, remove it altogether eventually. Well, then that makes I, universal even more important, right? Yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm not sure about that, Patrick. If you read the article that you linked, uh, yeah. they say that you don't need to you to do Ajax uh, URLs with uh, dash uh, stuff, but you can do whatever you want, and it will just crawl it okay. the way the way you want. So I don't think they will remove this. It would be a bit stupid okay. on that part. <laughs> yeah, that would be crazy. Ah, we'll see. Okay, it was something to uh, just look up after this a little bit. Um, okay, so preboot. I, I do want to mention that before we kind of get to some of the, like, the final topics. So one thing we realized 
I just started building out the core universal engine is that we run into a problem that you have this server render view that appears almost instantaneously and the user might interact with the page before the client bootstraps. So the client bootstrapping may take, you know, depending on the speed of your connection and other factors, could take five, six seconds, you know, anything like that. Without server rendering, the user doesn't see anything until that it finishes. But with server rendering, the typical scenario is that they'll see something under a second, you know, if, if you do everything correctly, and then the client kicks in five seconds, you know, six seconds. It depends, depending on how big your app is, and that's everything. We're going to take a quick break to hear about ThoughtRam. ThoughtRam. Extend your memory. Want to get up and running with the Angular framework, but don't have the time to read through all the documentation and tutorials on the internet? ThoughtRam's Angular Masterclass may be perfect for you. Check it out today at thoughtram.io forward slash training. Welcome back. Let's pick it up where we left off. So in that gap, the, the four, five second gap, uh, users can do a lot actually. And people, uh, you know, from having tens of thousands of people come to get human every day, we see it, uh, how, how quickly people just start clicking around. They'll, they'll actually come from a Google search click all sort of like, you know, 10 different things and then hit the back button before the client side app even loads. Like that, that happens, uh, you know, fairly frequently. So that sounds like a deal lot. With, uh, well, I could be too. Sure. But, but people, uh, do this as well. Uh, and so to deal with the situation, even if it's not like five different things, just even one thing, uh, it could provide a poor, poor user experience. So to deal with this, uh, we created this library called Preboot, which basically records events. Um, it, it gets included with the server rendered content, so it's there immediately, just a very small piece of JavaScript, and all it's doing is recording all of the clicks, all of the uh, mouse movements, you know, whatever else occurs on that page to whatever element. And then when the client finishes bootstrapping, it replays those events to the now active client code. And this is something that does not exist in any other solution other than Angular 2 with Bootstrap. Uh, it, is, it is built, uh, Preboot is built so that it actually could theoretically work with any library, um, but right now it's, it's, it's only integrated with Angular 2. And it does this in a way so that you, for example, see the page, might start typing into a text box, and the client side kicks in, and it's just seamless. Like the user just, see, like if let's say you were in a text box that was showing an autocomplete, the, um, all the uh, keyboard uh, strokes would be passed into the actual client view. It would do the searches, et cetera, once the client bootstraps, and user would see, you know, then their autocomplete, like, drop down, you know, as soon as the client kicks in. Uh, and there's other aspects to this, but that's sort of the basic gist. Uh, did, was there something, Patrick, you wanted to add to that? No, I think you, you covered pretty much uh, a lot of it. Basically, that uh, the server sends down the initial view, and then there's a gap between uh, 
the view, which have inputs or whatever, and the client application that hooks up JavaScript to you know the view. And in that gap, uh, essentially preboot allows us to allows the application to you know work in that environment in a way where if a user no this is remember this is like milliseconds right, um, and a lot of people have been avoiding like any sort of input uh, fields or anything inside the initial render because of this problem, but with preboot you're able to track all the events. So like if someone has a to do list and they type in something, um, and in that one one or two milliseconds. If you don't have preboot, then whatever you typed will be removed. Um, but with preboot, it ensures that whatever they typed is still there when the client bootstraps. Can you awesome. use preboot with anything else in Angular Universal? Let's say you want to record uh, an end-to-end -end scenario. You can do that with preboot and replace, maybe? Yep. Yeah, so, well, two, two aspects to that. Number one, it's really easy to use it with something other than Angular as well. You can use it with Angular 1, in fact. Um, we, we created an adaptation to be able to use it with um, some of the human stuff that we're doing. But besides that, it's also fully extensible and customizable over what type of events you're listening for and what happens in how you replay them, or if you have some sort of interim thing that you do. So like um, the, the terms that we have are uh, within the preview libraries, there's different strategies for listening, replaying, and freeze events um, or, or interim events. So the, the listening is just uh, uh, an algorithm for what and how it listens to things. So there's a default one, basically, that's built into the library. But you can easily override it if you had your own kind of way of, of how you want to and what you want to listen to. And then for the interim events, that's like if you the cl most clear example of that is if you click on a button. Uh, typically, with clicking on a button, you do want to wait until the the client um, bootstraps. And you, most of the time, you don't want the user to do anything else because. You click on a button typically means that like the form's been submitted, you're doing something else bigger. So we do have something like just kind of as a default that if you click on a button, it sort of freezes the screen, like it puts on an overlay and like spinner type of thing. Just because that's like the most common scenario, but you don't necessarily need that. You can you can replace that with some other behavior, whatever is needed for your app. And then the uh, the replay events, there's a specific way that Angular 2 loads elements on the page. And that is slightly different to how, let's say, React does or, or some other framework. So the replay events, the default strategy, it is in line with how Angular 2 loads elements on the page. And it, it can find, for example, the client-side rendered element versus the server-side, um, whereas you know, other frameworks might do it slightly differently. And so uh, just one uh, aside there is that I, I am working with um, some other developers in, in trying to see how um, using preboot essentially by itself almost, uh, or with you know, just plain old JavaScript. Uh, so hopefully we'll have something for that in the next kind of couple months that, I, that might be interesting. OK. Oh, did you have something else, Olivia? No. <laughs> OK. Uh, so let's get to what is left. So we talked a little bit about the core library itself. We're near the top of the show. But I, I think the key thing that 
people are interested in is when is this ready for use in production? When is, is the full release? And at a general level, what I've been telling people is that we're, we're trying to have everything done by the time that Angular 2 is, is in full release. But, you know, maybe, Patrick, you want to talk about what are the specific things that are still left to do um, for us to feel comfortable saying that this is completely production ready? Yeah, there's so there's some system.js uh, issues that we have to uh, resolve. Um, there's a ton of documentation that needs to be there. A lot of problems that people run into is just because there's a, a lack of documentation explaining that you have to create directives that only interact with the, the renderer as opposed to like grabbing like a document, assuming it's global, or like location, assuming it's global. Um, so um, basically that. Uh, a lot of documentation, um, and like critical like third-party services, um, and, like like location, <laughs> like location, and uh, standardizing the interface for like local storage and interacting with cookies. Um, so basically, yeah, saying, at, yeah. There's a lot of stuff that we've seen as as you and I have been building things out, and others that are just every every one of us have run into the same things that, okay, we need an SEO service. We need, you know, all these other things. So, like, that's the type of thing you're talking about that we gotta, we're starting to standardize, you're trying to standardize. Yeah, so providing a, a better contract with, like, third-party uh, libraries as well as um, the developer where they interact with essentially, like, how I mentioned that there's HTTP and then there's backend and mock. Basically saying that if your code is testable in that kind of uh, approach with like you're interacting with uh, the HTTP but there's backend and mock, um, so long as it's that, then it could be supported with universal because um, we could just swap out or the developer can create their own on the fly uh, version of the mock backend or you know node backend and then um, you essentially get universal support by default, so long as you follow like very small like best practices. And so long as we create the, the contract with the, the tokens. So basically saying like um, for for each environment you're able to utilize the this token. So token as in like DI token where there's HTTP and then there's probably going to be a window token and document token where you could inject those uh, globals. And so long as you interact with that, which we normally do in Angular 1 with dollar window. Uh, so so long as you do that, then, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the thing that we have to push is the standard for that. Yeah, at the end of the day, we're going to have a set of interfaces, right, that, um, like, yeah, like you use some good examples. Another one is, you know, uh, authenticated user or whatever we're going to end up calling it. Um, that there would just be a standard interface for how you access that because it's just needed for most people who build apps and, and you need to be able to have a common way in which um, the universal server side and client side kind of hook into the same thing. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah and, and it's interesting because um, Angular 2 more so than, than Angular 1, it's coupled by, by interfaces. So at any time, you can swap out anything. So if you have a, a bug in your code because of some Angular 2 internal thing, in Angular 1, you have to like, submit a pull request and wait. In Angular 2, you can just swap that out uh, with your own fix and then just move on and then submit 
a pull request or an issue saying that this is a problem. Uh, and I did that like many times throughout the Angle 2, uh, you know, beta and alpha releases. Um, so it's because it's coupled by interfaces, it's introducing the hexagonal architecture where um, you're interacting with the interface of everything and allows your code to be a lot more modular. And we take advantage of this with universal code. And um, that's the patterns that we're kind of advocating with server-side rendering and, and universal is that um, if you follow this small approach, uh, the small contract of just dealing with interfaces, um, not like TypeScript interfaces where you have to create an interface for everything, just saying that like for this particular like, class you interacted, you can guarantee that you could, that these methods exist. And because of that guarantee, um, we could hook into stuff like that and swap out uh, pieces and have everything still work. Uh, one thing you just made me realize too is that another, we mentioned use cases earlier in the show for Universal. Actually, one thing that we did not talk about, and I, I actually haven't even been leveraging that much, but I think is eventually going to become a thing, is using the server-side rendering piece for testing, for testing out uh, components, basically, because you know you don't, it's always, like we talked about in the last episode with Julie, it's so much faster, more reliable, better if you're running your tests on the server side. You don't have to spin up a browser or anything like that. And so if you can test your component and actually have it spit out static HTML that you're testing, that's what people in the React world do a lot, actually. And uh, that is something that we can do with uh, Universal. That actually uh, is an easy one of the ways that you can test your components. Yeah, so you could essentially almost think of it as removing the end-to-end -end, uh, step or at least pushing it later. So you could be a lot more agile by um, saying that for the most part, your tests are going to be running with the universal like server-side implementation of the document, which is a fake document. And um, you could utilize that and push the actual like browser environment thing towards like uh, like end of the day or something like that. Um, so you could be a lot more agile because it's a lot more faster to have your tests uh, run. Yeah. And then the last two things uh, you've been mentioning that we are trying to get in there, but not necessarily huge, huge deals, is um, multi-app support. So basically the ability to have many different applications running at the same time. So like there is built within Angular 2 the ability to do this. You know, you run different Angular 2 apps at the same time uh, you know, and that works, but having it work on both the client and server with preboot, everything like that. So, like, we're still trying to get some of those things worked out. And then performance-wise, uh, it is fairly performant now, but um, there's actually a lot more that we can do. And, and we want to sort of the litmus test for me, actually, is that I, I need you know, this solution to be at least as performant as my Angular 1 solution, um, which, you know, we are still have a couple things that we're working on. In particular, actually... In core, they are close to uh, landing a change which will allow you to pre-compile your templates, uh, which is different than pre-rendering that, uh, that, that uh, Patrick talked about earlier. Pre-compiling your templates essentially is just a build step uh, process where it takes your Angular 2 app and it builds these artifacts that you would still run at runtime, um, but it's just a more efficient way of doing that, and that is going to, uh, those pre-compiled templates are much easier to 
for example, share among multiple requests, like one thing I alluded to before. So that is actually Patrick. Do you know when that is supposed to be landing? I mean, we can't we can't say anything for sure. I mean, it could be tonight, tomorrow, like next month. <laughs> sure. um, like essentially, like the pre-compiled step. That's saying that your your string template, we're going to turn it into a factory function that outputs essentially what the compiler is doing. And then it allows us to remove the compiler code uh, from essentially the, you know, your Angular 2 bundle, right? So we're um, they're doing the same thing with CSS as well. So you can think of it as um, getting something like unCSS, which is essentially a service to remove CSS that you're not using. So you get something like that for free whenever you do like something like even more crazy advances like tree shaking, where you're, you essentially remove stuff that you're not using. So there's a lot of benefits of pre-compiling the, the whole application and converting all those strings into JavaScript um, and then shipping that. So that that's another like performance gain that it's going to be on the horizon. <laughs> okay, and we're past our time, but the last thing I wanted to mention, um, you know, looking to the future, is that um, after and this is not for the initial release, but just uh, so you know, for like kind of the on the to-do list for the future, um, we are eventually going to integrate Universal with non-Node.js backends. Steve Sanderson, who is going to be on next week, has already done this with uh, .NET. So he has an integration between .NET and Angular Universal, which is really, really awesome. We're essentially going to do the same thing with PHP, with um, Java, for sure. Uh, and then there's a couple other ones that people are talking about, you know, Python, maybe some other ones. Uh, so we'll see about those. But that's sort of like further down the road. Um, there's other caching stuff, other other crazy stuff that we definitely don't have time to get into, but um, a lot of stuff kind of on the horizon. So let's, uh, and, and if you want to learn more, I guess the, the way to finish this is that Patrick and I are going to be at ng-conf. We're both giving a talk, which we're going to get into. Uh, it's focused on patterns. Uh, you know, if you're building a production universal app, what are kind of the common patterns that you should follow? And then we're also doing a workshop. So if you're actually at the ng-conf, uh, you'll get a chance to sign up for a workshop, and we'll help you build a universal app uh, for the second day of the conference. So uh, anything else you guys wanted to bring up on the panel? OK, great. Let's get to picks. And let's start off with Ari. All right. Um, let's see. I think I did this once before. Uh, uh, we launched another like big section of fullstackreact.com if you are writing React apps. Um, uh, and I am kind of a little bit in the Lambda architecture. You probably could have guessed that uh, based on my comment earlier. Uh, serverless.com is a really neat implementation of uh, a framework built on Lambda, on AWS Lambda. That's cool. Yeah, I've been interested in Lambda. I'm definitely going to check that out. Thanks. Uh, Olivier? Um, our friends of uh, UI Walter just released Alpha 1 of 1.00 of UI Router. So uh, that's probably a library that you use if you do Angular 1. Uh, you should check it out. Uh, help them find out the bugs. Because once this release is done, um, they can focus on Angular 2 and UI router for Angular 2. So 
please <laughs> help them finish this one and let's have fun with UI Grota. Um, and the other part is uh, I wanted to say that all my libraries uh, on GitHub are unpublished proof. So you don't have to worry about me unpublishing my lips. Uh, I will deprecate them if I don't uh, if I don't use them anymore, but uh, don't worry, I will never unpublish them. Nice. And that. <laughs> nice. And um yeah, that, that is an important one to have. I think Gleb uh, tweeted about that earlier. I, I like the unpublish, uh, not being able to unpublish thing. All right, Wasim, go ahead. I, yeah, uh, I have a quick pick um, for folks who want to dive deep into Universal. Um, Patrick uh, has made a video on Read the Source about Universal. So um, we'll post the link uh, on Twitter so you can check it out. I mean, I know Patrick is the star, but I, I was actually on that video as well. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. He, he definitely did the majority of the talking there, so I'm a, <laughs> that was cool. Um, Patrick. Yeah, so my two picks are conferences, uh, ng-conf and Angular Connect. Um, definitely don't, don't miss. They're going to be pretty huge. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, I have just one pick, and I... I, I haven't uh, plugged get human like remember like maybe early on I, I mentioned one thing uh, because we've been in such a build mode for so long but we finally released uh, had a huge release last week that has a lot of the stuff that I've been working on for a long time and so I want to plug get human basically if you have a customer service problem that you need to call pretty much any company within a uh, bigger company within the US um, definitely go to get human first and can either give you shortcuts through the phone maze uh, ability to get through without waiting on hold or if you just want us to deal with it uh, you can just pay us and we'll handle the entire problem so uh, definitely check that out if you want to avoid the painful process that is most Customer service at most companies. So, yeah, I, I use GetHuman. <laughs> I use it a few times. Whenever I'm dealing with like Comcast, my ISP, or anything, definitely I just use it. <laughs> uh, telecoms are the worst. Yep. All right. Thanks for everyone. Uh, definitely, uh, you can send us questions. Uh, Patrick or I tweet us if you have any questions, and we can definitely get back to you. Otherwise, NGConf is going to be the next big update. So, tune in for that. All right, talk to you later. Cool. Bye, Bye. guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.